You're listening to audio from Grace Church Miami. May you be challenged and encouraged by this message. Having the affections of your heart stirred towards greater love and understanding of the person and work of Jesus Christ. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit gracechurch.miami. William Ernst Henley. He was born in 1849. He was young when he sat in the hospital and he suffered an illness that would cost him his foot. He would have to have his foot amputated. He lay in the hospital fighting for his life as an early teenager. And it was in that time that he was wrestling in his soul because it was in that moment that he had had his foot amputated, that he was fighting for his life, that he was thinking through some pretty deep things. Suffering has a way of bringing out not only um, an aspect of us that's, that's physically we're suffering, but suffering, there's a spiritual element to it as well. And he was contemplating that. He was wrestling. He was struggling, not just physically, but spiritually thinking through some deep matters as he fought for his life, as death was a possibility. And he was contemplating that. And it was in that moment when he was in the hospital that he penned a very famous and very beautiful poem called Invictus. Its last two lines you probably know. Now this poem I mentioned, he's wrestling within himself some deep questions, questions that I think you and I in our suffering when we go through trials, we ask ourselves, like, is there a God? And if there's a God, does he know? Does he know what I'm going through? And if he knows, does he care? Does he care? I think it's these questions that challenge our understanding of who God is. It challenges our convictional theology as well as our functional theology. Those of us going through gospel treason, he's talked about that. Bragg Bigney has talked about our convictional theology. This is what we say we believe about God. But then our functional theology, how do we live that out? Paul, in his letter to the Colossians, we see he sort of addresses these things as the first half of the book of Colossians, the first two chapters are really about the doctrine of understanding of who is this Jesus Christ? Who is Jesus Christ? The second half deals with, well, how do I live for him? Now that I come to understand who he is, it's doctrine and duty. How do I live for him? This poem, Invictus, it means unconquerable. It means undefeated in Latin. And in Colossians, we're going to look at this morning, the Christ alone is Invictus. Christ alone is unconquerable. Christ alone is and will always be undefeatable. He's Invictus. He is supreme. And I think if there is a word that could summarize all of Colossians, it would be supremacy, because it is about the supremacy of Christ 
over everything. You're going to notice as we read the text, it's going to mention all things. All things. He's over all things. It's going to say it again and again and again. And if you follow Paul's writings in the New Testament, you're going to see he's going to talk about the supremacy of Christ over all things and how he's unconquerable, how he's undefeatable, how he is supreme over everything. So if you would, look with me at Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. I think this is a declaration of who Christ is, but it's also Paul simultaneously is thanking God for who he is because of the implications this has for us. He says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him, and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. This morning, I want us to see four reasons, four reasons why Jesus Christ is Invictus and why he ought to have first place in your life. The first reason is because Jesus is glorious. Jesus is glorious. I want you to see this is the first reason why Christ is Invictus, because he's glorious. Look at verse 15. He's the image of the invisible God. The firstborn of all creation. Now, that word firstborn might trip us up a little bit because we might think of like birth order, the first to be born. But Christ is the creator of all things. He is not the first to be born. It's is a reference to his rank. Just like a king, if he dies, the son then becomes the heir of the throne and he now rules over all. So Christ is the firstborn. He is over all things. His rule, his rank is above all else. This is why he's glorious. But it says he's the image of the invisible God. We want to kind of unpackage this a little bit. Image means copy or likeness. You and I, we probably got up this morning, and at some point, hopefully, we looked at a mirror just to make sure if there's something we needed to correct after we slept all night. Usually, there's like a few things, like one or two. And then you look in the mirror, and you see the exact copy of yourself, I think there's two temptations, though, in this moment here. Two temptations that hinder our ability to think about this rightly. The image of the invisible God, to understand Jesus as glorious. There are things that distort our view, both of ourselves and of Christ. Let's talk about ourselves for a moment. We distort ourselves the moment that we get self-focused and we Think about life as me, me, me. It's all about me. We begin to look at ourselves and make ourselves above all else. The reminder in this passage is is that we're nothing like Christ. He's the creator. We're the created. And the temptation for us is to make life all about ourselves. 
And the best way, I think, to defeat this temptation is to take our eyes off of ourselves, stop looking at ourselves, stop focusing on ourselves, and start looking at Christ. Who is Christ? This distorted view of ourselves is a pretty big deal. Robert Thune, in his book, The Gospel-Centered Life, he talks about the danger of one um, that shrinks the cross of Christ. We actually make little of Christ when we begin to pretend our sin's not that bad. Everybody else does it. And so we pretend our sin isn't really that bad. We don't really need a Savior or we perform, he talks about, by compensating and, and seeking approval from God through our actions as if somehow our actions earn us favor with God. Again, this is a distorted picture of ourselves, pretending and performing. If we don't do this, the temptation is to distort the view of who Jesus actually is. And if we're not careful... We'll read the scriptures only a little and then sort of like fashion the Jesus that we want him to be for us. This might show up in our prayer lives where we make Jesus a genie in the bottle here to do whatever we ask him to do. Other times, we distort Jesus by not coming to him in prayer because we don't think he's able to do anything. And we ignore his holiness and his righteousness and who he is and how he's revealed himself to be in his word. God still speaks to us today. He's very clear as to who he is. So this morning what we're doing is we're going to look at the Bible. We want to understand when he says he is the image of the invisible God, what, what does he mean by that? Well, he's saying what was invisible now has been made visible. Now, God's not confined to a body like you and I. God's a spirit, but Jesus fully embodied. As Jesus became incarnate, he fully embodied the image of God. And I love how Richard Chen defines this. He says, only Jesus is the perfect, visible representation of God. Think about that. The perfect, visible representation of God. Perfect in every way. It's interesting, in Exodus Chapter 33, Moses, Moses wants to get a glimpse of who God is, and he wants to understand his glory. And so he asks God, would you show me your glory? And he answers him with yes, but with a few caveats. He sort of like hides Moses in the, the cleft of the rock, and he says, look, I'm not going to show you my face, but my back's going to go by, and you're going to get a glimpse of my glory, and I'm going to tell you who I am. And as he does that, he talks to Moses about the attributes. Moses gets a glimpse of the glory of God, and as the Lord passes by, the Lord declares about himself, I'm merciful, I'm gracious, I'm slow to anger, I'm abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And he goes on, and then all these characters are mentioned, and then it's in verse 8, we see Moses' response, and what does he do? The text says, Moses, quickly, he bows his head towards the earth, and he worshiped. He was struck in awe of the glory of God, just by a glimpse. And this gives us a helpful understanding of what verse 15 is talking about. He's the image of the invisible God. Jesus reflected the character of the attributes, the perfections of God. 
We don't normally talk about our character like the perfections. But when we're talking about God, it is totally appropriate to talk about them as perfections. Because each of his characteristics, each of his attributes are perfect. In John 14, 9, Jesus states, He who has seen me has seen the Father. And it's for this reason that Jesus Christ is most precious, most valuable, most glorious. Colossians 2, verse 3 says that Christ himself, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Wisdom and knowledge come from Christ. And God has graciously gifted us with his word that we might gaze at the glory of Christ that we might learn of his wisdom and knowledge, that that might affect the way we live. He wanted us to enjoy this gift. And now if you would, look at verse 16. It's verse 16. We're going to see another reason why Jesus is invictus. And it's not just because Jesus is glorious. It's because Jesus is the creator. Now, I have a caveat here. For the most part, I feel like I love all of God's creation. But moving to Miami, I have found one that I don't like. Okay? And uh, it's called a cockroach. And I think you all know what I'm talking about this morning. Um, In our household, uh, very early on, these cockroaches, they have um, a bounty on their head. So I've got three boys. It's a dollar per cockroach, boys. Let's go. Now, to be honest, it's not because I felt like I had a bunch of money. I didn't think they could kill them, but I thought the attention would be good. Um, So far, I'm out two bucks. If it keeps going, I'm going to have to change up the ante here a little bit. But for cockroaches, the other day, my son, he walks into the kitchen, and he's retelling a story about me that made me feel really good. And he's only four years old. So the story goes something like this. I think he was just struck in the awe of the moment of it. It was just mulling over in his mind. So he's like, Dad, I saw it. I saw a cockroach fly. It was over here, and it was over there, and it was here, and smash, and it died. And he was telling the story about me killing the cockroach. I'm like, I feel really good right now. I'm like the cockroachinator. And at our house, that's, you know, that's kind of how it goes. So we've got, I felt really good. And I was thinking about it in light of Verse 16, I'm like, I think I'm something because I kill a cockroach. Because for a moment I dominate something. What what does it say about Christ? Look at verse 16. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Everything you see, everything you don't see, he made it. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. We think about like thrones. We think about what the king sit on here. But he's, there's a reference here to the rulers and authorities, the dominions. He's speaking of the angels, both the good and the bad. And he's saying, I dominate them all. I'm over them all. I'm sovereign over it all. I'm supreme over it all. I think I'm something because I rule over cockroaches. Jesus rules over all things. He's not saying all kinds of things. He's saying all things. He made everything. Everything you and I see. Everything we don't see in the heavens. Verse 17. 
goes on to describe Jesus as our creator. He says, he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He preexisted before it all. And not only that, he holds it all together. There's a very delicate balance, and he is, he is the only one who has the power to control it all, to hold it all in place, to sustain it all. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to know that if we move much closer to the sun here in Miami, we're going to be in real trouble. And if we move away, then we're going to be like the people up north who get snow, and we don't want that. He holds it together. He holds it all together. Hebrews 1.3, you don't have to turn there, but you could jot it down. This is what it says. He says, Jesus, he's, he's the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sin, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. That's the description of our creator. I want to see another thing this morning, and it is that Jesus is preeminent. Look at verse 18. And he is head of the body, the church. Here again we see Jesus as supreme over all creation, but also over the church. And there's a metaphor here to kind of describe that. He's head of the church. I like how one pastor writes. He says, this concept is not used in the sense of the head of a company. As we might think about that, like who's in charge, who's the president, who's the CEO, who's the head of the company, but rather looks to the church as a living organism, inseparably tied together by the living Christ. He controls every part of it and gives it life and direction. His life lived out through all members provides the unity of the body. This is part of Christ. This is what he does. It goes on, he's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, Reference to his resurrection, that in everything he might be preeminent, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. That phrase there, that in everything he might be preeminent, some of you might have a different translation. It might say, so that he might come to have first place in everything. And if we understand rightly that Jesus is supreme, that Jesus is invictus, our only response should be that he have first place in our life. Look at verse 20 in this word, reconcile. And through him to reconcile all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. This is where we're going to see that Jesus brings peace. Through this reconciliation. As many of you know, it's tax time, right? This can be a great thing or not a great thing. <laughs> it's where the numbers uh, come true, right? You either overpaid and you're going to get money back from your taxes. Sometimes you get it just right, but it just never works that way, right? You either owe or you get it back. It's one or the other. And it's a reconciliation with taxes. Sometimes this is so difficult for us, we go to hire someone. We say, here, take my wallet, take everything. If you will do the work of working out this reconciliation, just give me the number, but be gentle. Be gentle as you show it to me. That'll be good. All right? And we're thankful for those accountants who help us out. 
If you think about this so for a moment, imagine it's tax time and uh, you've not paid your taxes for 20 years. Yeah, ouch. And it's not a little bit that you owe, it's a lot because there's this thing called interest, right? And they're going to get you for your interest. So let's say you owe like $100,000. This is Miami, that's not much. $100 million, okay? Um, it's a lot. And let's just say, I mean, you're like, this is going to, I'm going to have to give up my house. I'm going to have to give up everything. But no, your neighbor knocks on the door. is like, hey, I heard you were having some trouble with your taxes. Here you go. I just want to like reconcile it just so you're zero. That would be crazy, right? But awesome. Because now it's reconciled. Now you're covered. Now you're good. That illustration doesn't work here. It's not enough. This isn't the type of reconciliation that Jesus does. He doesn't just cover our sin and cancel out the debt owed to us because of our sin. It's more than that. To reconcile here is much deeper. It means to change or exchange. He's referring to our relationship with God. Romans is very clear to us. Romans 3.23. Just turn there for a moment. Romans 3.23 says, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The problem isn't just that we've sinned. The problem is we don't measure up to God's standard of perfect rightness. And then if you would, just flip over to 2 Corinthians 5.21. I want you to see what Christ does. This is the type of reconciliation he does. For our sake, he made him, that's Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin. Jesus lived the perfect life. There was no sin in him. But it says in the text, he made him to be sin. He took on our sin on the cross who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is the beauty of the exchange that's taking place. Jesus doesn't just take away our sin and reconcile us, but he credits to our account his righteous life. So that when God sees us, he sees his son and his righteousness credited to our account, that we might have a right relationship with God. It's a perfect relationship, and he does it through his blood on the cross. He made peace. We were once hostile to God with our sin. We had sinned against him, and Christ, by his own blood, paid the penalty for that sin and credits to us the righteousness of Christ. And this is how he is going to make all things new. Because he's supreme over everything, including sin and death. He's defeated it and conquered it for us. So that if we would repent of our sins and trust in Christ, it could be accredited to us and we could have a right relationship with God. We could be saved. Jesus brings peace. This is the beauty of who he is. Now, if you would, I want to turn to you the poem Invictus. I want you to take a look at it. He says, Out of the night that covers me, 
black as the pit from pole to pole. I think whatever God's may be for my unconquerable soul. In the fell clutch of circumstance, I have not winced nor cried aloud. Under the bludgings of chance, my head is bloody but unbowed. Beyond this place of wrath and tears looms but horrors of the shade, and yet the menace of the years finds and shall find me unafraid. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Look at the first stanza. It's apparent that William believed in a higher power. But the sad reality is he knows nothing of the glory of Jesus. If you look at the second stanza, he says, I have not winced nor cried aloud. This is good. He's not complaining about his circumstance. He understands that complaining doesn't, it's not going to help me at all, which is great. But where does he turn to? Do we turn to the Savior or do we turn to ourselves? And sadly, he looks to himself to be the Savior in the moment. And this is the beauty of Christ. It's because of his supremacy over all things that in there are moments where we feel like it's black from pole to pole, where we're going through hardship and suffering. What gives us great peace in that moment, what gives us hope in that moment, is understanding that Christ is supreme over it all. And he and he alone can work it out for our good and his glory. The third stanza perhaps is the saddest of all. With the word beyond, he points to an afterlife. But sadly, he's not optimistic of the afterlife. If you note the third stanza, he says, looms but horrors of the shade. He understood that there could be an afterlife But his thought was, is that it could be that the life to come might actually be worse than the life I'm experiencing right now. The sad reality is there's truth to that apart from Christ. The fourth stanza, we see the famous lines. I am the master of my fate. I'm the captain of my soul. It's a very satanic thought that we are our own authority. We're not the sole authorities over our lives. William was dominated by disease. We would think that this might help us because when we're dominated by disease, we might realize we don't have any authority over it. And he didn't have any authority to save his life, let alone save his soul. And I hope, truly I do, that before he died, he would have come to understand Christ. Christ is where my hope is. Christ has covered and canceled my debt. And that I can have peace because of him, not because of any strength that I possess. You and I are no different. We have no authority to save our souls. But Christ alone, he is invictus. He is unconquerable. If you will, turn to Romans. Romans 8. This is where we'll close this morning. Romans 8. 
And this is where we see Christ's supremacy over our salvation. Because Christ has conquered sin and death, because he is invictus, because he is supreme over it all, he can secure our salvation. And it's in verse 31 that it highlights all this. Paul's been talking about our great salvation, the future glory that awaits us. And then he asks this question in verse 31. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. That's to declare right. Who is to condemn? Christ is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God and Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to audio from Grace Church Miami. May God draw you nearer to Him through His Word. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit gracechurch.miami.